If you'll find your Bibles, or you can use the Bible in the rack in front of you, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. We're going to read together verses 35 to 38. And uh, if you're using that, uh, the Bible in front of you, that's on page 964 for most of them. There's a handful of rogue editions that are in there with different page numbers, but most of them you'll find that on page 964. Uh, but please stand with me as we read God's Word together. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogue and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is God's word. Amen. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open, if you will, to Matthew uh, chapter 9, or find your uh, way there again. We'll be looking at 9.35 through 38 this morning. Uh, For many of us, uh, students, teachers, uh, this last week was the beginning of school. Some of you are getting ready to start up uh, in the week ahead. And if you're a teacher here uh, among us, you know that the next few weeks are really the glory days of the school year. Uh, you know, students are back. They are fresh. You know, they are ready to come and see their friends. They are ready to pay attention and actually respect you and do what you ask them to do. Parents are revived. They're, they're happy to send their kids back and they're, they're you know, ready to dive in and help and do whatever is needed to be done to make this the best school year yet. And you also know, if you're a teacher, that that's going to last about four weeks, and then, you know, it's going to start getting colder, and students cooped up are going to start getting antsy. We all know how easily distracted uh, students can become, and we all know, you know, uh, what students are capable of in that distraction, in that cooped upness when a teacher simply leaves the room for a few minutes. You know, the teasing, the the spitballs, the name calling, the chaos that can ensue, not that I speak from any sort of experience on any of those matters, until the teacher returns to the classroom and reasserts their authority and restores order to things and gets everybody back to what they're supposed to be doing. Well, the Gospel of Matthew, which is what we've been studying through as a congregation, is the story of God coming back into the classroom uh, in order to reclaim order and rescue his people from their rebellion and sin through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, that unruly classroom is not a bad analogy for how we uh, as humans have been carrying on uh, throughout the history of the world ever since uh, just after God made it, you know, uh, except for the problem is that God didn't actually leave the classroom. We just started ignoring him and started living as though he wasn't there and doing what we wanted to do, uh, becoming an authority to ourselves, whatever would make us happy. And the result of rejecting God's authority and rule is that this world is falling apart, uh, just like that classroom is in shambles after just five minutes of of absence. Uh, 
uh, partly because of our own incompetence. We, we thought we could run the world well, and in reality, our greed, our selfishness, our sin just really makes a mess of things. It makes a mess of our relationships. It makes a mess uh, of just living, our finances, all of those kinds of things. And, and partly because of God's judgment on this world that's turned its back on him. Things don't work the way they're supposed to because they were never supposed to work well apart from him. And so Jesus, God's eternal son, has come to establish his authority to reclaim this fallen and rebellious world for God. And verse 35 in our passage gives us a great summary of his ministry so far in the story that Matthew's telling. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And we've been watching that unfold the last few chapters, how Jesus has been teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, how he's been healing diseases, forgiving sin, casting out demons, raising the dead. He's going throughout the regions, picking up desks, cleaning up messes, undoing the effects of our rebellion against God. And as he does so, he's announcing the gospel of the kingdom, as Matthew puts it. The good news that God's rule and reign are beginning to dawn on this broken world. That all that's wrong with this world because of human rebellion against God, and that very rebellion itself, Jesus is going to deal with it decisively. Things are finally going to begin to turn a corner in the story that God's telling because Jesus is here to launch God's kingdom. This restoring, this redeeming work is happening through him. And we see that his ministry is summarized there in verse 35. It's interesting when when you compare verse 35 to just a few chapters earlier in chapter 4, verse 23, you see almost a word-for-word repetition. And in that chapter 4, verse 23, as it summarized Jesus' ministry, it was setting us up for a sermon that he was going to give, the Sermon on the Mount. And so here, when we see this summary that's very similar, Matthew's doing the same thing again. He's getting ready to set us up for another sermon that Jesus is going to give in chapter 10. This one is about the mission of his followers. And we're going to begin looking at that sermon in a couple of weeks after the, the church retreat at Sandy Island. But before Matthew actually kind of launches into reporting that next discourse or sermon that Jesus gives us, uh, first, Matthew wants to give us a window into the heart of Jesus. Specifically, he wants to show us what was the look on Jesus' face when he stepped into that classroom and saw what was going on? What was the reaction in his heart when he looked out and saw the mess, the, the, the fruit of our defiance and selfish independence? Matthew wants to show us what it is that wells up and what drives him to do something about it and what ought to drive us. When Jesus stepped into the classroom, if you will, when he came and looked on a world uh, in chaos and rebellion, he didn't gag in repulsion. He didn't blow steam out of his ears in anger. His heart was filled with compassion. That's the reaction we see this morning. 
And that compassion moved our Savior to action, to calling His people to pray and then sending them out into the world to bear witness to Him and His kingdom. And so it is that our mission as well ought to be fueled by compassion even as it must begin with prayer. Our mission as Christ followers is fueled by compassion and it begins with prayer. That's what we see this morning. So let's turn our hearts again to prayer as we look at this story. Uh, Lord, we want to hear your voice this morning. That's why we're gathered. That's why your word is laying open before us. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would speak. That your word here in the scriptures would would change our lives. That you would give us eyes to see you more clearly. That you would give us ears that are able to hear your voice at work in our lives. That you would give us hearts ready to be changed by your grace. By the good news of your kingdom by the truth and the hope that that brings. So be honored this morning as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and look with me at verse 36. And Jesus has a heart of compassion. So when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Again, when... When Jesus looked out on those who had been following him around as he's been traveling, as he's been doing his ministry, healing, teaching, and so on, he didn't see unruly students. He saw lost sheep. That's what he saw. He has a heart of compassion. And the word for compassion here is, is kind of more rigidly or literally your bowels or your guts, which is, you know, kind of an interesting picture, you know. When we speak of deep emotion, we usually refer to the heart. You know, I love her with all of my heart. Though sometimes we'll say things like, you know, my gut reaction or I hate him with all of my guts. And so it's that, that deep level of emotion that comes from within. So, so whether it's like the, the flutter you feel in your stomach when your beloved walks in the room or the pit that you feel in your stomach when you see a car accident happen or you receive devastating news. That level of deep emotion, that's what Matthew's describing here in Jesus' reaction. A compassion that wells up from within him as he looks at the crowds that are following him. His heart is moved to pity and to sorrow for their condition. Now it's interesting, as I've been studying this passage this week, could not help but think about it in connection with what became the major news story of this past week. You know, and I'm not talking about Syria or even Tim Tebow getting cut from the Patriots, but the performance of childhood star Miley Cyrus uh, during MTV's Video Music Awards. Now, I didn't watch the awards, but uh, it was pretty shocking for people to see the, the young girl who brought them Hannah Montana doing things on stage that Madonna would blush at. And, and you know, it was interesting to see the world's reaction to that on the news media, on the social media. It, it ranged pretty universally from embarrassment and mockery and disgust. Now, no doubt some are thinking, it's the MTV Awards. What did you expect? Uh, but it's interesting that even for MTV, this felt over the top for people, which... 
on the one hand, suggest maybe there's still an element of moral conscience in America. Uh, But again, I can't help but notice a contrast between America's reaction to this young girl and Jesus' reaction to the crowd when he sees them. You know, a crowd who is no doubt filled with the sick and the wounded, as we've seen, but also with prostitutes, with tax collectors who are known to extort and take advantage of people, with, as, as Matthew summarizes elsewhere, a crowd filled with sinners. When we see someone doing something that seems morally inferior to us, it's very easy and we're very good at expressing outrage and disgust from on high as people in general and as as Christians in particular. And there is a sense in which sin ought to turn our stomach. It ought to bother us when we see people going against God. But how should our hearts respond to the person caught up in the sin? That's the question here. How should our hearts respond to the person? Jesus doesn't respond with revulsion or disgust but with compassion and sorrow for their condition. And what is that condition? He goes on to describe. He says, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So when when Jesus looks, again, he, he doesn't see just troublemakers and bullies, though he sees them. He also sees people who are bullied by others. He sees that they were harassed, they were exploited, they were taken advantage of among the the people in those crowds. Moreover, he saw that they were helpless to do anything about it. So you picture the small child cornered in the classroom with the five tough guys around him. What What hope does he have until the teacher shows up in the room? Or until maybe a friend were to kind of jump in and help him? They were harassed and helpless. You know, you think of the sheep uh, left to wander alone in the field. They need a shepherd to come in and rescue them and lead them and guide them and protect them and feed them. And that's actually what Israel's leaders were supposed to be doing for this crowd. The phrase, like sheep without a shepherd, is actually a common phrase used in the Old Testament to describe what happens to God's people when Israel's leaders uh, fail to lead according to God's will. So Joshua was appointed to lead Israel in Numbers 27, quote, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Or you think of uh, perhaps the most scathing indictment against Israel's leaders, uh, one that no doubt Jesus has in the back of his mind here, is in Ezekiel 34. And if you don't mind, go ahead and flip to that chapter with me. Ezekiel's in the Old Testament, uh, probably maybe 15 books from the end of it or something. Uh, again, if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it on 854. But look with me at Ezekiel 34 for a minute and, and listen to the role that shepherds were to play and what happens to the sheep when they fail to play that role. So Ezekiel 34, 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man... Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not the shepherds take care of the flock? 
You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. They're harassed and helpless. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. So even as Jesus looks out and his heart breaks for the crowds, these words carry also with them a subtle indictment against the leaders of Israel who have failed, like the shepherds of old, to nurture and to tend the flock toward God. As Jesus says of the Pharisees later in in Matthew 23, they tie up heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders. Here's all the rules and things you need to do, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to help them move them. They're not interested in helping people actually come to God. They're interested in being in control just like the shepherds of old. But Jesus, in contrast to them, Jesus loves his lost flock. He will not leave them as sheep without a shepherd. He has come to fulfill God's very promises in Ezekiel 34. So if you look again at verse 11, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. And then verse 16. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong, the bullies, if you will, I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And then in verse 23, I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. God looked on his lost flock and he had compassion. He said, this is not the way it's supposed to be. So I'm going to send to them the one shepherd my son, David. And here, it's, it's a new David. Ezekiel's writing this what, three, four hundred years after David's already dead. He's talking about someone who's going to come and sit on the throne of David and shepherd the flock of God as Israel's king. And that's exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do. He's that one shepherd who will feed and protect the flock, who will chase them down and seek them whose heart breaks to see his people wandering lost in their sin, in their sickness, in their suffering, and who will do whatever it takes to make things right for God and his kingdom. Now, it's important to note that that when Jesus looks with compassion, he's not excusing moral guilt here. Uh, To look with compassion on someone, even to acknowledge someone in their trouble and their oppression, it's not to say that they're doing nothing wrong. Sometimes we think that if we show compassion, we're somehow saying that it's okay to keep doing what you're doing, even if scripture goes against it. 
On the other side, sometimes we think that unless we affirm everything about someone and their behavior, that we're not actually having compassion at all. But Jesus shows us a third way between those two alternatives. He stands in opposition to all sin. He knows what sin does to his father's honor. He knows how it destroys the life of his people. Jesus is against sin. And yet he looks with compassion on those who are caught up in it. In his mercy and his love, he grieves for them and for the damage that it does to their lives and for the disgrace that it brings to his father. And that compassion moves him to actually do something about it, to to get himself dirty in ministering to their lives, even to get himself killed. And that's actually the extent that Jesus was willing to go to make mercy and compassion possible for sinners, to take our sin and to make it his sin and then to pay the penalty of God's holy anger against it, to pay that penalty in full. Not so that we could go on in our sin, but so that we could be rescued from it, so that we could live lives that have been cleaned up and transformed by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus. So to withhold compassion to someone is to neglect the sufficiency of God's, of God's grace won in the cross. If, I, if I'm unwilling to look with mercy and grief and compassion on someone in their sin, then I am neglecting the fact that Christ has done everything necessary already to rescue that person. To say that sin is no longer sinful and that it doesn't matter is to say that the cross wasn't even necessary, though. And, and so Jesus shows us a third way so that compassion is given for sinners on the basis of the cross. Compassion on the basis of the cross. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do our hearts respond when we see people in need, when we look out and we see people doing things that, that you know, make us uncomfortable or that seem to go against God's word? Well, I'll tell you how my heart responds. Uh, sometimes it genuinely breaks. Sometimes I'm I'm just, I'm torn up over, over the, the dead end that I see people seeming to wander down. But just as often, sadly, my heart will secretly stand in judgment toward that person and then close in on a, in a sort of self-protection. So, so I'll, I'll see someone in need and I become more worried about how this could really inconvenience my life than I am burdened for, for what they're going through and their trouble. Or I'll see someone doing something that is against God's word, or at least that I disapprove of. And, and, and so I'll distance myself from that person. Um, I'm afraid to be seen with them or, or, or to get my hands messy. That's the default reaction of my selfish heart. And quite ironically, what's underneath that response is not so much a high view of God and his holiness, though I would like to claim that. It's a very low view of his love. That's what's underneath my heart when I do that. A low view of his love that comes from forgetting the incredible extent of that love that he's already shown me in my selfishness, in my sin, and in my weakness. 
You see, when we look at this passage, we are the crowds. We are the harassed and the helpless, the unruly and defiant. We are the sheep in need of a shepherd. The extent of our sin is not measured by how good I look next to that person. It's measured against God's holiness. And we all, every one of us, fall short of that. I think of Isaiah 53, 6. It says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. That's true of all of us. We are the sheep. Each of us has turned to his own way. But that verse continues. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There will be a servant who comes to rescue God's sheep and who takes their sin on himself, makes it his sin that he might forgive us and cleanse us and redeem us for God. It is only through faith in Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us in his life, in his death and resurrection, that we can be made right with God, that we can be forgiven of our sin. And when we forget that and some, and get to a point where, you know, life's going well and I've been, I've been pretty consistent with reading God's word and praying and, you know, I'm serving in this and that and so on. And we begin to think that, that the blessing we receive is because of how good we are. And we forget our utter and, and desperate need for God's grace in every waking moment of our life. That's when our hearts begin to grow cold. That's when our hearts begin to close in and withhold compassion to others in need. But when we're mindful of the judgment we truly deserve and the grace and love that we received instead of that judgment, that's when our hearts well up in love and mercy and compassion and a desire that others would experience it as well. As Jesus puts it in in Luke 7, he who is forgiven much loves much. He who is forgiven much loves much. Jesus has a heart of compassion for this world and that compassion moves him to take action. May we have a heart in that same way. But what is the action that Jesus takes? Well, ultimately, he's on his way to the cross. He knows that's where he's going. But even before he goes there, his compassion moves him to get his followers involved in his mission as well. And that's what we see in verses 37 and 38. So verse 37, Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus came to this world with a mission to rescue sinners, to reclaim this fallen world for God and his kingdom. And he'll do that ultimately through the cross. But he also gives his followers a mission, not to repeat what he's going to do, but to bear witness to what he's going to do, to tell others about it. He's about to send his 12 disciples out to announce the coming kingdom among the lost sheep of Israel. That's what we'll see in chapter 10. And at the end of this book, he's going to send all of his followers out to all nations on the earth to make disciples for Christ. We have a mission. But 
before he sends them out, look at what he does. He asks them first to pray. He asks them first to pray. Our mission as Christ followers is fueled by compassion, but it begins with prayer. Now, it doesn't end there, as you'll see, and as we'll see continuing through Matthew, but it begins there. Now, I was the kind of student who, you know, when I got the assignment, I just started working on it without even reading all of the instructions and such. And, of course, that caused a fair amount of grief at times. But, you know, and and there's a temptation to treat ministry in the same way. Here's the mission. Go do it. Okay, let's go do. And Jesus says, hold on a minute. Slow down. Before you dive in, you need to pray. Because the mission that you've been called to is something you're not capable of accomplishing in and of yourself. Helping others come to trust Christ, helping them to bring the truth of his grace to bear on every part of their lives, you can't do that. And so there's only one person who can pull off that mission, and it's God himself. So you need to avail yourself of his strength. You need to go before him in dependence and in in seeking his help to do what you cannot do without him. You need first to pray. So how do we pray this passage? Uh, First, we need to pray with focus. If you look again at verse 37, Jesus has shifted the metaphor here uh, from a crowd, or excuse me, he shifted the metaphor of the crowd from describing them as sheep. Now he's describing them as a harvest field. There's a, basically he's saying there's, there's a large number of people that are in some way just waiting to hear the gospel message of Christ. And, and that's true to differing extents throughout the whole history of the world. There are seasons where, you know, a town or a region can become more closed to the gospel than others. And there are seasons where, you know, you just mention the word Jesus and all of a sudden you've got a conversation on your hand and pretty soon you're praying with someone to give their life to him. We don't know what those seasons are. In this particular passage, the, the fields were ripe. Sometimes New England feels like pretty hard soil. As a pastor friend of my mine once put it, God doesn't call us to be soil testers. He calls us to plant and to sow. And so even whatever season we're in, we, we, we look out and we go forth as though it's ripe for the harvest, trusting God to do it. But in this case, Jesus tells them people are waiting to hear. But then notice how specific the prayer is in verse 38 that he asks them to pray. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, Jesus doesn't just say, pray for those lost sheep or, or pray that God would redeem them. Those are great prayers. There's nothing wrong with praying that. He gets a lot more specific, though, doesn't he? Pray for God to send out laborers into that harvest field. Jesus wants us to pray with focus. So as we pray for God to do his will, you know, here in the Metro West, in New England, to the ends of the earth, are we praying with focus? Are we praying just kind of, you know, generically? And again, praying is, is, is awesome. I don't want to put down that, that anyone would pray. But can we pray with more specificity? Instead of just praying that God would do something here in New England, pray for your neighbors by name. Pray for your towns and cities by name, 
Pray that God would spend, would send, you know, three more churches into this area or three more laborers for this ministry. Pray with focus for God to do it. He wants us to pray with focus. Second, we need to pray with urgency. When a sheep is lost, it's an urgent situation. Time is of the essence in seeking and finding it before a wolf finds it or before it wanders off the cliff. When the harvest is ready, there's urgency in, in collecting it before it spoils. I remember you know, growing up in, uh, in rural Nebraska and, and driving by cornfields on my way to church. And, and one December, there's this one cornfield and it's all still stocked and it's covered in snow. The farmer didn't get to it in time, lost the entire field before it all went. There's an urgency in harvest. Prayer is not inactivity. Jesus wants us to pray with urgency. Uh, pastor and author John Piper elaborates on what's at stake in approaching prayer with this kind of urgency. And I love the metaphor he uses here. He writes, probably the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission to go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, Comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give you tactical advice and to send air cover when you need it. But what have millions of Christians done? We've stopped believing that we are in war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peace and prosperity. And what did we do with the walkie-talkie? We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. Now, those are sharp words, and we need to hear them. I personally need to hear them. How much does my prayer life devolve into, Lord, save me from this inconvenience? Instead of praying with a wartime mentality that there are lost sheep, that there is an urgency, that they would come to know Jesus, that they would be presented with the gospel. God's the one who has to change their hearts, but he's called us to pray and to proclaim. How often do we make prayer about our conveniences and comforts instead? So we pray with focus. We pray with urgency. Third, we pray with expectation. We pray with expectation. God doesn't mock us with his promises to answer prayer. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon said, I cannot imagine any one of you tantalizing your child by exciting in him a desire that you did not intend to gratify. It were a very ungenerous thing to offer alms to the poor, and then when they hold out their hand to take of it, to mock their poverty with a denial. 
it were a cruel addition to the miseries of the sick if they were taken to the hospital and they're left to die untended and uncared for. Where God leads you to pray, he means you to receive. Think about that. God's not playing games when he says, pray for me to send out workers into the harvest. Ask and you will receive. He's not playing games with that. Where he leads us to pray, as Spurgeon says, he means you to receive. And so, do we pray with an expectancy that, that this is serious business? Do we pray and believe that Jesus will, in fact, answer our prayers? It's interesting to see as we keep going in, in the next chapter, he's going to answer the prayer that he just asked us to pray, asked his followers to pray here. He's going to answer that prayer before they even lift a word to God. He's already at work on it before they've even uttered a prayer. He means us to receive. He wants us to go forth and to, uh, you know, to share the good news right here in, in the metro, in the metro west, right here in our neighborhoods. He wants us to lay down our lives in love and to open our mouths with the good news. And he means to answer that prayer. So we pray with expectancy. We pray with focus, urgency, and expectancy. And then finally, we pray with compassion. We pray with compassion. Back to where we started. We remember the grace that we've received, and we long for others to receive it as well. Our mission as Christ's followers is fueled by compassion, but so is our prayer. So is our prayer. We pray not self-righteously like the Pharisee in Luke 18, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, you know, robbers and evildoers and adulterers and tax collectors. That's not the shape of our prayers. Instead, we pray with them and we pray for them. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We pray with compassion. Author Donald Whitney has said, Most of the great movements of God can be traced to a small group of people he called together to begin praying. Will we pray? Will we as a congregation pray for God to send out laborers into his harvest across the globe, but right here as well? Now, there are several opportunities as a church that we have for prayer. And you should know about those at 8.30 before the, the worship service at Thursday mornings, I think at 7 at the Daggetts. And, and there are other opportunities as well. But would, would that God so move in our hearts that we didn't wait for the church to schedule something for us to come pray at, that we would just get together and do it because the mission is that important and, and God is that worthy that we would be praying for him to send out people, knowing that maybe even we're part of the answer to that prayer? Would that God would do that in our hearts, that we would devote ourselves to seeking him for the advance of his kingdom? And when we look at the world, disgust can be kept to yourself. You know, outrage can be expressed from a safe distance. But compassion gets you involved. Compassion leads to mission. And mission begins with prayer. So let's lift our hearts together for these things as we close this morning. Lord, you alone know the full truth of how desperate we are before you. 
and yet you alone love us despite our weakness, despite our sin, like no one else could ever dream of loving us. And that is because of the cross. Lord, may our hearts be broken for our own sin, for our own weakness, for our own need. May our hearts be broken for our families, for our friends, for this congregation. May we not fall into the trap of thinking that we've somehow arrived and that we're standing there next to Jesus looking out on the crowds. May we not forget that we too are part of those crowds and that Jesus is our Savior and that we need him just as much as everyone else. But yet may we come alongside or underneath him as his followers and, and carry that same compassion to this world around us. May we trust him and move out in that same mission that he sends his disciples on. Not to repeat his saving work, but to bear witness to it. He has done everything necessary to deal with our sin and to bring us to you. Everything necessary to make right what's wrong in this world. He's begun it. He will return to finish it. May we love others and may we prayerfully take risks to make you known in light of that great hope, Lord. So break our hearts. Break our hearts, God. Break our hearts that we would see you and that others would see you through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.